open up to the book of Ephesians. <coughs> if you do not have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. You are, in fact, welcome to take that Bible home if you don't have a Bible. Last week we talked about uh, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians from verses 15 through 23. And we said that Paul was asking God to open up the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians so that they could fully understand a couple of things. The hope to which they were called, God's inheritance in the saints, and then finally the power of God at work in the lives of believers. And then we said that Paul gave a picture of that power. Paul said, if you want to know what the power of God is, you need to look at the resurrected Christ. You look at his tomb where he laid for three days, and you see that he's no longer there, and that in fact, not only is he risen from the lowest place he could possibly be, he's also been lifted to the highest place he could possibly be, the position of authority above all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named, and he has been given as a head over all things to the church. He is the one who fills all in all. That was really powerful stuff, I think. But we said that there was more to see there. You see, because Paul didn't just pray that the Ephesians would understand the power of God. He said, I'm praying and I'm asking God to help you understand the way that his power is at work in your life. That's why Paul says, towards us who believe. So it's not just us understanding this vague concept of the power of God, but the power of God that's at work in our lives. And today, that's what we're going to do. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, we read the following. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So in the same way that Christ was dead and in the grave, Paul now switches focus and he says, you, you listeners, the Ephesians, everyone in this room, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In the same way that Christ was physically dead in the grave, you were spiritually dead in the grave. This is the analogy that Paul is drawing. Then you look in verse 4, and he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, like Christ was dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So you see what's happening here. Christ was dead, and you were dead. Christ has been risen. He's, he's been lifted up, and now you, if you are in Christ, you also have been lifted up, and you are seated in Christ at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. This is how the power of God is put on display towards us who believe. It's one thing to grasp the power of God in resurrecting Christ. It's another thing to grasp the power of God when you think about the fact that it raised you from the grave. Now, if I had to imagine 
what barrier there might be to you grasping this truth. I mean, really grasping it, right? Because last week we said that Paul doesn't just want us to intellectually know this. He wants us to know it on a heart level, an experiential level, a relational level. He wants us to know this truth intimately. And as I'm studying the text, I'm thinking, what is the biggest hindrance to you really grasping this? Not just you, but everybody. And I think it would probably be your inability to understand what it means to be dead in sin. Unless you understand the weight of spiritual death, you will not appreciate the glory of your resurrection. Unless you understand the forcefulness of the bad news of the gospel, the grace of the good news of the gospel will not impact you the way that it is supposed to. So, we are going to take a long, hard look at what it means to be dead in sin this morning. Let's go ahead and read uh, for context chapter two, verses one through 10, and then we'll dive into the text together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless your word this morning in us. Amen. (coughs) God helps those who help themselves. You've probably heard that before. If you live and work in Decatur, you've probably driven up and down 6th Avenue and you've probably seen that sign, that that phrase written on a church sign on this very road. Uh, If you've driven past that sign at other times, you might have seen a similar sentiment which says something like, you take the first step and God will do the rest. But this is not the gospel. This idea that uh, you take the first step and God will do the rest, the idea that God helps those who help themselves, this is an idea that's rooted in ancient Greek philosophy, not the gospel of the Bible. The Bible says that because of our sin and rebellion, we are dead in our relation to God. That we are completely and utterly separated from God. And dead men do not take first steps. 
dead men don't take any steps at all. Dead men are completely incapable of helping themselves even in the slightest. If you want to know what it means to be dead in sin, Paul has given you the analogy. The analogy is you look at a dead person like Christ in the grave and you look at that person and you go, oh, that's death. And then you look at your own spiritual condition apart from Christ, the condition of the unregenerate man, and if you want to know exactly what that means, well, it means the same thing. Physiologically speaking, it's quite simple. The dead can't see, the dead can't hear, the dead can't speak. They have no sentience. Their heart has stopped beating. Their lungs have stopped working. Diffusion of oxygen has ceased to take place. Their body just no longer systems, all, no longer func- functions. All systems have shut down. Uh, I watched my mother slowly die over the course of several months. She weighed maybe 80 pounds when she finally passed. She was on enough morphine to take down an elephant. Uh, She had a colostomy bag. She was bedridden. She was basically helpless. But she was alive. She had the ability to think. She could communicate, if only barely. She could even move if you asked her to and if you helped her. She still had memories and desires. Her cells still made energy. Her brain still functioned. None of this is true of a dead person. Even a really, really, really sick person is still distinct from a dead person in a very significant way, in several very significant ways. I remember during my time in Iraq, I was a combat medic and we were in the main trauma center where people who got shot or blown up or injured or whatever the case may be, from within 100 miles around, they got choppered, they got medevaced into us, into our station. And what that means is that I had a lot of people die on the table in front of me. Oftentimes with my hands still on their bodies doing chest compressions. If you've never been around somebody when they die, uh, it may not make sense to you when I say this, but if you've seen it, you understand what I mean. You can tell that something significant has happened. You can see the light go out. You can feel it. There's a sense of finality to what's taking place in that room. There's no waking up a dead person. There's no asking a dead person to sit up or to roll over or to wiggle their toes or to move their limbs. You can poke a dead person in the eye. You can rub their sternum. You can jab them with needles. You can shout in their ears. It doesn't matter. They will be completely and totally and utterly unresponsive. Even a a woman in a coma who may seem like she is completely and totally and unresponsive, not able to move or do anything like that, she still, we know, has the ability to perceive the outside world. But not a dead person. And this is what Paul says the unregenerate man is, dead. The unregenerate man is as dead as a corpse who's been in the grave for a hundred years. His heart no longer works, his eyes no longer see, his ears no longer hear. Spiritual rigor mortis and morbidity has fully and finally set in.
Scripture tells us that this is true of every single person that has ever lived. If there is a person who has not placed their faith in Christ, that you know that person is dead in sin. This is true of your friends. This is true of your neighbors. This is true of your coworker. That's a really, really good guy. Really nice guy. Would take his shirt off of his back. It's true of him. It's true of your parents. It's true of your grandma. It's true of your children. It's true of your grandchildren. If a person does not belong to Christ, they are separated from God and without hope in this world. I was with my mom in her last moments of life. I did not want to be. I wanted to be anywhere else in the world than there with her as she carried on with her agonal respirations. I could hear the gurgling in her lungs. She was completely unresponsive. But I couldn't leave. My mom was not a very good mother, but she was my mother, and so I had to sit there and hold her hand on the bed while she died. I had to look death in the face. And you have to look death in the face too. This morning, you cannot look away from what the Bible says about what it means to be dead in sin. Not if you love these people. You have to reconcile what God's word says about those who do not have Christ with the reality that you know these people and you love them. We want to avoid death. We live in a society where everyone does everything that they can to avoid looking at death, to avoid talking about death, to avoid dealing with death. But Paul holds our heads fixed on death. He holds our eyelids open so that we cannot close them and try to avoid the reality of our death apart from Christ. We cannot minimize the reality of what it means to be dead in sin. We cannot sharpen the edges of the gospel to reduce the offense of what Paul says about what it means to be dead in sin, to make it more easy to stomach. I know that this is not easy to think about. I know that this is morbid. I can almost feel you fidgeting in your seats. You can feel the tension in the air. We just want to get past it. We're not accustomed to making eye contact with our own depravity. So when the preacher doesn't just talk about it and move on, but hangs out on it, we're just like, man, please just hurry up and move past. Get to grace. Get to something light and fun and fluffy. But if you don't understand what this is, you won't understand what grace is. If you don't understand what it means to be dead in sin, you won't understand what it means to be made alive by God you will not in any way understand what Paul says when he talks about the power of God towards us who believe unless you understand 
what it means that you were that person who did not believe. So don't look away. And don't minimize. Unregenerate man is not sick in need of medicine. The unregenerate man is not injured in need of rehabilitation. The unregenerate man is not merely ignorant in need of education. The unregenerate man is not asleep in need of stimulation. Unregenerate man is dead. And it doesn't make sense to us because the people that we know who don't have Christ, especially the young and the vibrant and the healthy ones, we look at them and we go, but you look so alive. It just doesn't make sense to our minds. It's like looking at a a really healthy piece of fruit on the outside and then biting into it to find out that it's completely rotten on the inside. How can you be so alive and be so dead at the same time? But God says that no matter how alive we may look on the outside, we're all dead in sin. Jesus made this point about the Pharisees. You know, we all look alive in certain ways. The Pharisees tried to look alive through their religion. And Jesus said, yeah, you're just a bunch of whitewashed tombs, right? You look clean, you look pure, you look white on the outside, you look like you're doing okay, the outside of the cup is great, but on the inside, you're just a bunch of corpses. Dead people live like dead people. Paul makes that point here in the text. He says that the sin that brings about their spiritual death is manifest in their lives. They walk, right? That's what he says. He says, in which you once walked, and walked in the Bible specifically refers to how you live. So how does a dead person live? How do they walk? Well, from verses two and three, it seems like they live like zombies, being led around by the noses. They're followers. This is particularly offensive to us because we all like to think that we are pioneers. We are trailblazers. We are leaders. We don't follow. We lead from the front. But Paul says in verses 2 and 3 that all we do is follow. We follow the world and the system of this world and the God of this world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and we follow our own evil desires. Read verses two and three again. It says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This picture that Paul paints about the way that the unregenerate man lives is powerful. In this picture, the very air that we breathe, the prince of the power of the air, the, the air, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere, it's, it's all around you right now, that's, the, that's what air is, it's, it's everywhere. And Paul says that the air that we breathe is infected by sin and brokenness as it is ruled over by Satan. Like patient zero the spirit of Satan has transmitted the virus of sin into the lives of everyone who rebels against God. The plague of sin has broken out of our own individual hearts and into the systems of this world. It's in the very air we breathe. 
and the unregenerate man follows right along with it. We see in verse three. The unregenerate man doesn't follow Satan because Satan has a gun to his head. From verses two and three, we see that the unregenerate man follows Satan because he wants to follow Satan. Satan has created the world to look good to the eyes of a dead person. And so as an unregenerate man looks out at this sinful and fallen world, he sees something that's attractive to his eyes and he runs after it. I don't know if you heard the way Grant prayed in his prayer of lament this morning, but he talked about the way that we love our sin and he talked about it in contrast to the way that God loved us. God loved us when we were dead in our sin, but we loved our sin. The unregenerate man breathes in the air of this sinful world with joy. Like a person who smokes and hasn't had a cigarette in the last 24 hours, he inhales the pollution and loves every second of it. The world on the one hand, our inward corruption on the other hand, they're walking lockstep like two men who have a common leg tied together to lead us all the way to hell. And Paul says something even more offensive. He says that this is who we are by our very nature. In verse three, he says that we, were, that we are by nature children of wrath. In the mind of Paul, we don't grow into this evil. It's not as if we were born perfect and pure and then slowly the world and its systems got its tentacles into us and corrupted us. No, he says this is who we are by our very nature, at our core. Like a cancerous acorn that grows up into a corrupted oak tree. The unregenerate man is born in sin and releases his roots into the tainted soil of this broken world. He shoots out his branches into the atmosphere of the fall and he unrolls his leaves into the contaminated air that they may take up and feed on the corruption therein. As a pastor, I sometimes talk to other pastors about pastory kinds of things, right? And, and one of the things that we kind of commonly talk about is things that are hard to preach and teach on. Right? Things that you know are going to unsettle some people in the church. Maybe a family might leave over it, that kind of thing. And one of the things that kind of every pastor knows is that if you want to grow a church, you just don't, you don't hang out on this stuff. You don't just hang out on the fact that we are at our core deserving of God's wrath because we are so sinful and broken. It's a big mistake. You don't tell people that the all-consuming fire of God's righteous judgment is upon them, not because of what they've done, but because of who they are at their very core. The second week we worked through the book of Ephesians, we talked about election and predestination. Those are pretty controversial. They're right there in the text, but they're pretty controversial. I really don't think that they're half as controversial as what we're talking about this morning. It flies in the face of what every unbelieving person and so many Christians think is true of themselves, that they are basically good people. 
a young couple with two small children, you know, Jenny and Tommy visiting the church, ages four and nine, you're sitting there and you're telling them that not only they, but their own children, if they don't have Christ, are completely corrupted. The world that we live in evaluates people on a scale of good to bad, and you move up and down on that scale based off of your decisions, how you live. If you do good things, you're a good person. If you do bad things, you're a bad person. But even, and by the way, the word evil is only reserved for certain people like Hitler or Republicans. And then <laughs> after that, you know, the word bad is only really, it's, it's like a placeholder. You don't actually mean it. Um, bad is really what it means is uneducated. It means like you're untrained. You're really a good person. You just need to be taught. And then you can be the person that you really are at your core because we know that there's no such thing as a bad person. But the Bible's picture of who, of who human beings are, it's just infinitely bleaker than that. It's just way worse. The word of God says that our nature is corrupted and that we do bad things because we are bad people, not the other way around. The Bible also says that the good things that we do aren't even really good because they flow out of a corrupted heart with impure motives and lack of faith. If you want to know what the Bible says about human beings, you can just listen to, qual to Paul in Romans, the book of Romans. He says that no one is righteous. And in case you're wondering, like, man, maybe in the Greek that doesn't actually mean no one. Maybe that's just like a turn of a phrase. He then goes on to do what he does. I love this in Paul. We'll see this next week in chapter two. He, sa he says one thing one way, and to make sure you don't misunderstand it, he says it another way, and then he'll come back and he'll say it another way again. Again, that's what he says here. He says, no one is righteous. Then he says, no, not one. And then he describes the person who's not righteous, which is all of us, and he says, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together, all of them together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul, you're not going to grow a church talking like that, buddy. I was recently speaking with a man who is no longer a Christian, and uh, trying to work my way up to evangelizing him. And one of the things that he was telling me was that, uh, you know, some of the issues that he had with Christianity, and one of the main ones that he talked about was that Calvinist doctrine of depravity. He grew up in a church of Christ and where he studied all the different brands of Christianity, and, you know, he said that Calvinist doctrine of depravity. And he's talking about this right here. Well, this may be Calvinism, it may not be Calvinism. Friends, I don't care about any of that. This is the plain reading of the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible to you this morning. And so what he was rejecting was not a particular brand of Christianity. He was rejecting the plain reading and teaching of Scripture, the orthodox faith that has been delivered once and for all. And I think he's rejecting it because it's really, really, really bad news. And to make matters worse, it's equal opportunity bad news. It's not like anybody can claim that they are the exception to this no, not one policy that Paul says that God has about our unrighteousness. There is no group of people that we can point to and say, you're an exception to the bad news. Not your nana, not your husband, not you, not the milkman. There is no sexism in the bad news of the gospel. Both men and women 
are under the wrath of God because of sin. There is no racism in the bad news of the gospel. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and any kind of anything in between, all of them together are dead in sin apart from Christ. There is no classism in the bad news of the gospel. Rich and poor alike are fallen and slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. The rich are not insulated from the wrath of God by their wealth, and the poor do not get a pity pass on their sin. Jew and Gentile, day laborer and doctor, prostitute and soccer mom, it doesn't matter. They're all walking around like corpses who have been painted up for the day of burial. You may not believe a single word that I've said this morning. We have some visitors here. I don't know what everybody believes. I don't know what everybody's background is. And even, I don't know, maybe some of the members of the church don't necessarily believe this. You should know that I'm, I'm not even really trying to convince you of this this morning. I'm just trying to take this text and air it out before you and tell you that if you profess to be a Christian, right, what that means is that you claim that this, God's word, is the sole source of authority in your life. It's how you decide what is true and right and good and beautiful and evil. And if you claim that to be the case for your life, then you have to reckon with what this word says about people who are dead in their sins, even if it means that your mom may not be in heaven, even if it means that your children may be lost. I don't say this as a disinterested party. I say this as somebody who has a mom who I don't know if she's in heaven. Two weeks ago, I had a conversation with one of my children and I said, let's go over the gospel and I explained the gospel and I said, you know, and only by believing this gospel and turning away from our sins can we be saved. Do you believe this gospel? And she said, I don't know. And it killed me. But I have hope. But my point is that I'm not saying this to somebody who's disinterested. I'm, I'm there with you. I'm living the same human experience with you. I'm wrestling through this with you. And I'm fighting to do the same thing that you must fight to do, which is to take God at his word, even if it's scary and hard and difficult. I'm wrestling not to look away, but to stare death in the face. Now the first two-thirds of this sermon has probably felt like uh, a descent into the darkness. It's probably felt very heavy, shadowy valley of despair, a sense of hopelessness and foreboding, and I think that all of that's good. It's right. You're happy and light and joking and casual all the time. That's, that's all life ever is for us. It's good that we take a time to be heavy and weighty and to look death in the eyes. And that's what Paul does here. But, but, then we come to verse four. In verses one through three, after Paul takes us as low as we can possibly go, as deep into the darkness of depravity as possible, then we come to verse four. And in verse four, the God of the gospel breaks forth in the fullness of his glory and light. Verse four begins with the two most precious words 
in all of the Bible, the two words that will help you understand the gospel more than any other words in the Bible. The two words of verse four begin, but God. You were dead in your sins, but God. You were lost, but God. You were slaves to your lusts and to this world, but God. You were corrupted and you were sitting in God's crosshairs. And God's wrath was getting ready to rain down on your head, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we hated him, even when we rebelled against him, he made us alive together with Christ. And you'll notice the text doesn't say, but money. It doesn't say that like you, you bought your way out of your damnation. It doesn't say, but my family connections. It doesn't say, but my good works and my religion. It doesn't say education. It says, but God. The bad news of the gospel turns into the good news of the gospel at the initiative of God. In the same way that Jesus loved Lazarus and raised him from the grave, God has loved us and called out to us and by the power of his word raised us up out of the grave. In the same way that the spirit raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and principality and made him as the head over all things to the church that he might be the fullness of the he that fills all in all. Christ did that to us. We are now seated with Christ at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the spirit that was now, that was once your slave master, the spirit that led you around and, and, and made you obey all that he had to say or do, he's now under your feet. You now have a very real authority over him because of where you are in Christ. The desires of your body and your mind no longer have to lord over you, but rather they must be subject to the Lord that lives in you. All honor and glory and might belong to the Lord our God who by the sovereign power of his hand unilaterally rescued us from the grave and made us alive. Our sin took us low, as low as anybody could ever go, but grace has raised us high. Our sin brought us death, but his power gave us life. Our trespasses separated us from Jesus, but the Spirit has given us life together with his son. Now listen. <clears throat> if you think that you are basically a good person that is just in need of some fine moral tuning, this gospel will fall flat in your heart like an unfunny joke. It will be worthless to you if you think that you're basically a good person. But if you believe what God says about who you are apart from Jesus Christ, this gospel will completely transform your vision of who God is and who you are in relation to God. It will completely transform your understanding of who God is in his very person. Consider love. We're a culture and a society that loves love. We talk about love all the time. Love is the answer for all things. People can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want as long as it's loving. But we don't really understand what love is. And so often in the church, we're confused about what love is. And we say that certain things that God has said about himself can't possibly be true because they're not in line with what we think love is. 
But this picture of the love of God as demonstrated in this gospel is astounding. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, this is the picture of God's love. Guys, there's nothing special about loving people who have it all together. There's nothing special about loving people who love you. There's nothing special about loving people who are kind and thoughtful and selfless and gentle and patient and forgiving and honest and charitable and meek and independent and financially stable, never in need and so easy. There's nothing special about that. But to love the rude, the arrogant, the vile, the impatient, the callous, the thief, the gossip, the murderer, the rapist, the rebel, the traitor, the pedophile. To love us when we were still enemies of God. That is the most special kind of love. That's why Paul in Romans chapter five, verse 10 says that God justified us when we were still enemies. This is what grace is. When you think about grace, you should just think, oh, grace is God choosing to love sinners, not because of their merit, right? Because they don't have any merit. He chose to love them despite their demerits which makes worst works-based gospels absolutely worthless and false gospels. But we learned last, no, two weeks ago in chapter one, verse seven, that this love came at a great cost, right? This love was costly to God himself. In chapter one, verse seven, we read that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Our sin demanded blood from a just and righteous God who is completely and totally holy. And that is a price that we could never pay, but Christ paid that price on our behalf. And now God is calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in his son Jesus and the payment that he has made so that they may be raised to newness of life. Friends, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ and you have not trusted in Christ and you don't really know what to think about all this, let me tell you, you don't have to fully understand everything that I'm saying here. You don't even have to fully believe everything I'm saying here. But you must believe that you are lost and dead that you need help from outside of yourself. And I'm telling you that if you turn to Christ, he loves you more than you could ever imagine and he will receive you and he will raise you up to newness of life with him. If you wanna know more about that, I'd encourage you to talk to me or any of the elders or any of the members of this church after service. One of the things that I've found as I've been uh, discipling people for over a decade now is that People feel like their faith kind of gets a second wind when they come to understand the gospel in this way. A lot of Christians haven't been discipled very well. They have a very shallow understanding of the gospel. They're in churches that kind of preach over hard passages like this instead of preach through them. And so they don't really grasp the gospel that well. But then they say when they, when they come to understand this, this gospel, sometimes it feels like they weren't even saved at all until they understood this gospel but they find that everything begins to change in their life. I know that was certainly my experience with my wife. 
I stopped being so prideful, so arrogant. How can a dead man who's been brought to life be, be arrogant about being brought back to life? He didn't have anything to do with that. And it just changes everything. One of the things that it changes is there is somebody who really understands what happens in the gospel. There's a desire to give that away to other people. If you have received life, you desire to give that life away. And it's, it's hard. It's not easy. Sharing the gospel, it's like a weird episode of the Twilight Zone, you know? I'm here to tell you that you're not actually alive like you think you are, okay? It's, it's difficult. It's sometimes embarrassing. But my point is, is that people who have been brought to life have a desire to give that life away. And the confidence that we can have in evangelism is that God has promised to give life to his people. He has promised to build his church by resurrecting men, women, and children from the grave. We should have tremendous confidence knowing that we can't bring people from the grave. We can't raise people up. I can't make my unbelieving neighbor become a Christian, but I can be faithful and I can share the gospel with him and I can trust that God can use that gospel to resurrect my neighbor. He can do something that I can never do. I don't know how God might be calling you to share this gospel with people in your life. I don't know. Maybe you're working on that coworker. You've been trying to build a relationship with them for the last 10 years and it's slow going, but you finally think you've earned the right to be able to speak truth into their life. You know, maybe you're the kind of guy who's called to go out on a college campus and have a microphone and debate people and, you know, do it that way. Maybe you're called to do what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3, which is just live with unbelievers in such a way that glorifies God and shows the gospel off and and makes people question their own reality and existence. No matter what it is, God is calling every person who has been resurrected to pull other men out of the grave. When a person hears the word of truth and they're saved and and they believe and they're sealed with the Spirit, they do what Christ commanded them to do or they should do what Christ commanded them to do. They are baptized, right? This, this is what baptism is. Every time we fill this thing up, it's, it's not just some trite religious ceremony. It's a picture. In 30 seconds, you can see in a baptism what I've been trying to explain to you in a sermon for the last 45 minutes. As a person goes down under the water, they're picturing being dead in sin and buried with Christ. And as they rise up out of the water, they're picturing being raised up together with Christ to newness of life. Paul explains that thoroughly in Romans chapter 6. And one of the things that he says there that's very interesting is he says that baptism is not only a picture of what has taken place, but also a picture of what must now take place in light of our resurrection. He says it like this. He says, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see that walk language? It's the same language that we just saw here in this text, right? Paul says, you used to walk like this when you were dead in sin. And here in Romans 6, Paul says, and if you claim to have been raised with Christ, now you must walk like that's true. You can't walk like a person who's still dead. You have to walk like a person who has received life. That's the reason why our church covenant has this paragraph in it. It says, we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, 
denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried at baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. This is what the church is. The church is a community of people who have passed from death to life, and it is only those who have passed from death to life. We don't baptize babies because we don't think that babies have passed from death to life. We have no good reason to believe it. As elders, we are hesitant to baptize children because we think it's so hard to tell if they really have been, if they passed from death to life or if they're just mimicking their parents, which isn't bad, but it's just not conclusive. This is the reason why if you sit down to join this church, you're gonna have a conversation with elders where they ask to hear your understanding of the gospel and they ask to hear your testimony and they ask you questions about holiness in your life because we wanna know if you're just playing religion and you wanna be a part of this social club, which this social club, I don't know why you would be, but, or if you are really resurrected from the grave by the power of God. In our context, it's very important to note that to be dead in sin is very easily hidden. All you have to do is show up on Wednesdays and Sundays and play nice, and people can very much think that you are alive. You can learn the language and the lingo. You can dress the part. But there has to be something more. And we as a church have to be aware that people can play religion and think that they're alive and yet still be completely dead in sin. One of my jobs as a pastor is to help people see that they may in fact not be alive in Christ in the way that they think they are. Not trying to get people to perpetually doubt their salvation, but sometimes. Now, two weeks ago, in closing, I told you that two weeks ago that salvation is from first to last a work of God. Right? Now, I hope that today's text kind of brings that idea into even sharper focus. Right? It, it has to be from first to last the work of God because we can't raise ourselves from the grave. You know, we can walk out to the cemetery, you know, uh, Mr. John Maxwell, can you get up, please, sir? No, he's not going to get up. It's not going to happen. Dead men don't rise from the grave without God resurrecting them. But next week, we're going to see something special. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's explanation as to why salvation is from first to last a work of God. If, you, if you're the kind of person who likes to ask why, like my children, and you, know, you can't just kind of take things as they are, you've got to go, why? And then they explain, and you go, well, why that? Right? You're going to love next week, because next week, after saying over and over again that salvation is first to last the work of God, Paul is finally going to tell you why God has chosen to do things the way that he has chosen to do them. Why this way and not some other way? Why not allow man to partake in his salvation at some point? Well, God had a good design in doing it the way that he did it, and we'll come back next week at 10.30 and look at that together. Uh, for now, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would use this church in this city to bring men and women and children to life in your son Jesus. We recognize that we are so incompetent and we are so broken and we ourselves are still wrestling with so much sin. But we ask that you would use this crooked stick of a church 
to draw a straight line of salvation in this city. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's look together uh, at Luke chapter 15, verses 21 through 24 that say this. 